everybody, and welcome back to Snescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo Library, three games at a time. We play them briefly, we judge them harshly, and we rank them, and that is pretty much all you need to know. I am Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. And we are back, folks. That's right. Uh, just like that dinosaur story, we're back. <laughs> so, Oh, I think we'll get there someday, actually. I think there was... We will. There is a game based on that, actually. Yeah. yeah. Probably not very good, but uh, I don't know. You never know. Maybe it's great. There's at least one great game based on Ronald McDonald. So there is no reason to assume that any particular license is uh, is going to lead to a bad game. The SNES library is a little strange at times. There are two video games about Chester Cheetah in this library, the Cheetos mascot. So, uh, wow. yeah, we're going to go on some journeys eventually. But, hey, we've been on some journeys these past few weeks. We had our special. We talked about Street Fighter the movie, we talked about Star Trek, and now we are back. We are finally back talking about Super Nintendo games again. We are probably going to talk about movies again, but maybe make that just like a special thing, because that was a very long podcast and a lot to edit, so we were kind of thinking maybe like a Thanksgiving thing. Maybe. That, uh, I think, is, is going to be a nice thing to be able to go back to, uh, you know, when, when people have a little more time, maybe, to sit down, listen to some some people jaw on about uh you know some video game movies yeah and if your relatives happen to be horrible you could subject them to the movies as well so there you go yeah <laughs> and uh, as far as the star trek thing we will probably break that out into its own podcast eventually but um th that might be a little ways off right now i, I don't know we'll, we'll see we'll see we enjoy doing all of these but that one especially is is fun because it's kind of a different thing for us and uh we we can figure out a way to make that work I'm pretty sure. Definitely. Right now, we are going to get into it because we've got a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to talk about some games that our guests brought up a few episodes ago. We're going to relitigate a few things, see if we think that some games ought to be replaced on the list, maybe a little bit higher up than they are currently. Uh, we've also got three games, maybe, on the docket today that we're going to try to get to. We're going to talk about Irem Skins game. We are going to talk about Skulljagger or possibly Jaeger. I don't actually know how it's pronounced. And if we have time, we're going to talk about Race Driving. So that's what we got. Well, uh, that's exciting. I'm really looking forward to looking back at some of the games that we played before and, and seeing what we think of them now. And I am also excited to get back into it and start putting more games on our list. So what do you say we get to it? going to relitigate today is Super Double Dragon, and this was brought up by uh, Trevor of the Catching Up on Cinema podcast. A big thanks to him for being on our special. He suggested that we put Super Double Dragon way too long on this list. He also suggested that maybe we just weren't very good at the game and didn't do things like block enough. Which uh, I got a little bit defensive about that on the, the episode, I think, but he's right. Uh, I at least did not really try to use that mechanic very much. I don't think I really knew that blocking allowed you to do grabs on enemies and that it was like a major way that this game allows you to get out of being like pinned in from both sides by enemies. So yeah, going back to it with that in mind, definitely switch things up in the game for me. I have kind of mixed feelings about it. So I 
turned the game back on. I was trying to do more blocking, and I bounced off of this almost immediately because it just wasn't really working for me. Um, it wasn't solving some of my biggest problems with the game, which was it wasn't keeping me from getting boxed in with two enemies on either side of me with little recourse as to what I could do about it. Blocking can help an enemy that you're facing, but if someone's behind you hitting you, that doesn't necessarily do anything for you. Then I went back and I played some Rival Turf, you know, just kind of have that comparison fresh in my mind again. Really enjoyed it. It's a really fun just pick up and play game. It's real silly. It's also very janky, but in some ways the jank actually helps because like the janky animations mean things happen very, very quickly. And that was kind of nice. Like the game felt like it just kept up at a really rapid clip, which is another problem I have with Super Double Dragon. Enemies take a very long time to go down in that game. And sometimes it just feels like a slog. That is definitely true. So, you know, I definitely did come away from this game with a more positive impression than I had of it originally after playing it again this time. But there are definitely still pretty significant things that do bother me about it. One thing is certainly the combination of the enemies all taking a while to go down and not getting visible life bars for any of the enemies. It's not unheard of for a beat-em-up to not give you life bars for the enemies. The first Streets of Rage doesn't do that. But the thing about this is that the enemies do take a lot longer to go down in this game than they do in a lot of other games where I've seen them forgo the life bar. It's hard to know kind of how close you are to defeating an enemy. You kind of just got to get a feel over time for how long certain enemies take to go down. And it does end up making the game, which already is is kind of slower paced than a lot of beat-em-ups, feel a little bit more sloggy than it probably should. You also brought up a good point earlier with the lack of the health information of the enemies, where in some games that can help you decide like where your priorities need to be. Like, okay, this guy's almost dead, so I'm just going to take him out now, and I've got one less enemy to worry about. But after I played Rival Turf, though, I I went back to Super Double Dragon again, and this time I actually found myself kind of getting into more of a flow. And I even made it all the way to level 6, I believe, before dying, and... um, I actually lost my last life and continue to a bad platforming section. Um, Yeah. Belt scrolling brawlers need to stop including platforming sections. Just stop that. You know who you are. Yeah, I agree. That is not great. That notwithstanding, though, I I definitely think that this is a more kind of technical brawler than I think, you know, either of us sort of gave it credit for originally. It's got some really nice things that you can do that more complex than what you get in some of the other brawlers that you could find around this time. Uh, I like the fact that you can do kind of a, a flying kick if you press the jump button again while you're in the air. You know, in, in that second playthrough of Super Double Dragon after playing Rival Turf, I realized my big issue with the game is that this isn't just a pick up and play game the way Rival Turf is. This is a much more methodical hey, you need to practice. This really is kind of a a get good kind of game the way, you know, Trevor was saying. It kind of is, yeah. That isn't always the best kind of game for us to play on this show because we are trying to cover three games every single time, sometimes games we've never played before. And so we don't always get, you know, like hours and hours and hours to spend on each game. Right. So if something isn't immediately understandable and, you know, like I could just immediately get into the game and start having fun with it, That could affect my opinion on the game just because, again, you know, I've only got so much time to evaluate this thing. So 
I definitely understand where Trevor's coming from, and, and I definitely think Super Double Dragon is a better game than we're able to give it credit for, just because it requires more practice, you know, and, and I think in some ways this can work to the game's advantage. You know, Rival Turf is a really fun, pick-up-and-play, silly game that you could probably blow through, especially with another player, relatively quickly. Super Double Dragon, you're going to see game over a few times and have to start all the way back at the beginning before you're able to finish it, even with a second player. You know, if you're looking for a longer, meatier experience in your brawlers, that might be something you like about Super Double Dragon. If that's what you're looking for, I would recommend Super Double Dragon over Rival Turf every time. Yeah, it just kind of depends on what you want, really. I still think Double Dragon has some pretty serious flaws. How long enemies take to defeat, how long some animations can play out, you know, like getting stunned is always really annoying. You're stunned for a good couple of seconds. Enemies can wind up and kick you and you see it coming, but you can't do anything about it. That's always a really frustrating sort of thing. I love the weapons, though. I loved it whenever Oh, the weapons I got... are great, actually. Yeah, yeah, they were a lot of fun. For sure. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff that I still had, that I had real issues with when we played it before and then when we discussed it with Trevor on the special, you know, those are still things for me. Like, I still don't really feel like this is a completely finished game. Like, it feels pretty shaggy in some ways. Levels do just sort of stop and start with no really clear indication that you've reached the end of a sequence. Um, There's not really clearly marked out bosses, not really much in the way of transitions between different areas. This game doesn't do much production outside of the gameplay itself. You see a title screen, you hit start, and you are starting the game. And then when you die and, and run out of continues, you get sent right back to that title screen. Yeah, so that stuff's all still true. And that is a shame because the core gameplay here, I think, is very solid. So I think we are going to elevate this game a little bit on the list. This game may not go up quite as high as Trevor wanted it to, but I, I definitely think it's worth uh, bumping up. So right now it's at number 49. We have two football games, uh, uh, Super Play Action Football at 44 and John Madden Football at 45. I think we can definitely agree that we would go back to Super Double Dragon before we would go back to either of these yeah, football games. Yeah, that's, ver- that's very true. Um, right above that, we have Pilot Wings at number 43. I think your opinion about both of these games is slightly higher than mine. So yeah. what do you think? I want to hear what you think about that matchup. I think Pilot Wings is a much more fully put together game than this i think that it does also have quite a bit of gameplay depth once you kind of get into it i don't disagree with the idea that it's it mainly exists to show off what the system could do with it with mode 7 but i think it does do a lot with some pretty specific ideas in that i do also think though that Probably I would be more interested in going back to Super Double Dragon. Uh, I think I would probably be a little more drawn back to that than Pilot Wings in the long run. Okay. So right above that, at number 42, we have Final Fight. This is one I I probably should have played as well to evaluate, and I did not. I think Final Fight is going to come out looking better than this in terms of presentation. You know, obviously, it's got a lot of that Capcom polish on it. But I also don't think it's tremendously deep. Super Double Dragon does have a bit higher of like a skill ceiling, I think, than Final Fight does, at least in my experience. And I do really like the fact that you can play Super Double Dragon with a second player, which once again is sort of the cardinal sin of Super Nintendo Final Fight uh, is is not having that. (laughs) So it sounds like you want to put this above Final Fight? 
I, th- I think I do. Yeah, I could go with that. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to be too easy on this game because I do still think that some of my criticisms from before, like the fact that this does feel a little bit like a step backwards features wise in Double Dragon. Well, you know, like you don't have the various selectable characters like you did from Double Dragon 3 that, you know, you sort of win over to your side by beating them as bosses. I, I think that's kind of a bummer. Where do you think's the ceiling for this one right now? I wouldn't put it above Smash TV. Okay. Yeah, I I could see it going above Rampart, though, honestly, because like Rampart, I do think has some things about it that are ill suited to the Super Nintendo. You know, like the the lack of a mouse control, first of all, it makes this game pretty hard to recommend over any other version of this game. Maybe just based on that, I would maybe make this our new number 40. How do you feel about it? That feels okay to me. And one thing I will also say about Super Double Dragon is that in prepping for this, also took another of Trevor's suggestions and went back and and, uh, played the Japanese version of this, which is called Return of Double Dragon. And that feels to me like the version of this game you should play if you want to go out and play this, because that actually does fix some of the issues I had with it with regards to the polish. It does actually have transitions between levels. It feels like it's more fully put together. It's got some different stuff going on in terms of at least some of the the stage layouts that uh, I think does really add something to it. And it just feels more complete. So I, we haven't ranked that one. I think that one probably would rank at least a few notches higher than Super Double Dragon if we were to rank it. But if you want to play a version of this, I, I would probably recommend going with that one. All right. So that's uh, Super Double Dragon, our new number 40 now. All right. Nine Space Jump. Not, not bad, actually. That's better than I thought not it was going to be. Not bad, yeah. That's pretty good, yeah. Now we're going to talk about Greg's recommendation. So uh, Greg from Nerds from the Crypt also recommended something to go a little bit higher. He was talking about PGA Tour Golf. Yes. And you know what's funny about that is when he talked about PGA Tour Golf, you know, I looked over at the list and I saw, you know, we've got Howl's Hole-in-One at number, well, now number uh, 47, but at the time, I guess it would have been 48. Uh, Yes, that's right. PGA Golf Tour uh, at 49. And most of the golf games on the Super NES have left us feeling pretty positive on the whole. So it kind of surprised me to see that our highest ranked golf game was really close to 50 on this list out of 100. Yeah. And we were kind of wondering what happened there. How, how did that end up being the case? So I think one of the things that was going on here was that because House Hole in One was so early on, our memory of it was a little bit fuzzy. And so we kind of had this idea that we liked it better than all the other golf games, but we couldn't remember it enough to elevate it above other non-golf games. Yes, I agree. I think that's absolutely what happened. So I, I've i actually gone through and I replayed just a little bit of all the golf games we've got on this list. Um, I think I, I am completely okay with everything's placement in relation to all the other golf games. I do think that House Hole in One is still the crown standard of golf on the system. At this point, I did the same thing with with, I guess, one exception. Uh, we have two very similar True Golf Classics games on the list. I did not replay True Golf Classics YLI Country Club, but I did you know, spend some time with all of the other ones. And I, I agree. I agree with their relative placement with each other. Yeah, I think that that House Hole in One still holds up as as the best of these. Yeah, and I definitely think Jack Nicholas Golf is down there uh, yeah. at number 74 reason. I don't think I would boost that one up any. I think that that is easily 
the most poor version of golf on the Super NES. Um, you know, it's it's trying to do some things that just don't work on the system. No. Um, when the ball is in play, it's like there's a dynamic camera that is trying to follow it. It's, it's so hard to like actually judge what you're doing with the ball in that game. Yeah, and, and that camera just chugs. It The Super NES just cannot handle it. No. Um, all the graphics of the trees are actually like <laughs> pixelated photos. And they're kind of drawn in as the camera creeps forward. So it never feels as complete as what I'm sure they wanted it to feel like it's, it's a bad look. And honestly, like the true golf classics games, which are at uh, uh, Pebble beach at 51 and YLI at 53. I think those are more visually impressive games that handle all the technical stuff a lot better than Jack Nicklaus golf. They're a lot better at laying out the information and showing you what you need to know. You know, those games also are very slow. They do chug a lot and they're probably doing stuff that's a little bit beyond what the Super Nintendo is really capable of. But at least it always feels like you're in control of what you're doing and you can still have a very fun time playing those games. All three of those games, the, the True Golf Classics games and Jack Nicklaus have a behind the golfer camera angle when you're uh, you know getting ready to hit the ball. With the True Golf Classics games, you can adjust your your direction, your camera elevation, which is actually kind of unique to those two games. But yeah, it's not an entirely necessary feature, and it takes a good second or two for it to actually raise or lower the camera because I think it's it's got to process everything to reposition all of the elements on the course and it's it's just again it's it's kind of chuggy and it's not really conducive to what the Super NES is good at at least when the ball is in play in True Golf Classics the camera is not following the ball it, it just cuts to wherever the ball ends up which is still a little bit laggy but you know it, it's better than it just trying to follow it completely yeah for sure but yeah i think the biggest sin that all three of these games commit is that they're just trying to have so much detail on the course in a way that just doesn't make the game look all that much more impressive it's just kind of no. slowing everything down and making everything feel kind of cramped and it just doesn't work for me especially as a super nintendo game maybe as a pc game this would be better i mean it, there is a real feel that it should be on a computer in the, in the case of the true golf classics games, certainly given how much the window is like split up into different things. And, you know, I don't know, that just feels more like a PC sort of thing to me than something that's really taking advantage of all that, like TV real estate that you have on the super Nintendo. I, yeah. I like those games, but I definitely think they're kind of an, an order of magnitude below how successful both PGA Tour and House Hole in One are at being a fun golf game on the Super Nintendo. Yeah, another thing that uh, Jack Nicklaus Golf does not do that almost every other golf game, with one exception I think, does is that there is a full view of the entire hole on the screen as you're kind of lining up your shot, which I think is really helpful. And the lack of that in Jack Nicklaus Golf really hurts the experience. Yep, I agree. Those games are all staying where they are. I, I think we've got pretty good places for those. Now, PGA Tour and House Hole-in-One, I think both of those can move up. I guess let's take a look at House Hole-in-One first, because I, I think we both agree that that one's going to go higher, because we, we like it the most. It is. It's, I think it's the best one. Some interesting things about House Hole-in-One is that um, it retains an overhead view of the course, or of the hole, I guess I should say, while you're lining up your shot. So you don't actually yeah. see a golfer, you're not looking over the golfer's shoulder or anything like that. Um, you just see kind of like an overhead view, which, you know, is maybe a little bit less dynamic, but I think works for the Super NES. Honestly, I, I enjoy it more personally. Like, I agree it's 
it, it maybe doesn't have that kind of dynamism to it, I guess. But, you know, I think for the most part, whenever I'm playing one of these golf games, I'm mostly looking at the mini map that shows the lineup for the shot anyway. So just having that be more or less the whole thing honestly is is good. And I, I think it helps the game feel so snappy. Like, I think that's one of the things that's so great about that game is that it just feels like you're continually moving forward and you don't have, you know, a bunch of downtime between each shot. I agree. Um, I do like the overhead view. I think it works just fine. The only time you break away from that is when you are putting and you your ball gets near the hole or, or goes into it. You get that nice, really close-up view of the hole and the ball. And I like that, get that a lot, yeah. Yeah, you got to get that sense like, oh, is it going to go in? Is it going to roll off the rim? What's it going to do? Yeah, I think that's really, really neat. I think the presentation of it is nice. The menus don't take you out of the course. All of the menus are just kind of plastered over these nice uh, 16-bit renditions of, you know, a nice picturesque golf course and clubhouse and things like that. It, There's just a very pleasant, relaxing, sort of like summer day feel yeah. to everything about the game. It really captures the sense of relaxing fun that I want out of a golf game. I'm looking at the list here. I'm trying to decide where this one's going to go. I'm definitely going to put it above the football games. Yeah. I'm looking for more sports games. I'm seeing like Super Soccer champ and super soccer at 31 and 32 respectively i think i like this better than those i agree with that and then above that we've got super r-type at number 30 i think i like this more than super r-type what do you think i think i agree with that i mean super r-type is a very good shooter you know super r-type was pretty successful at you know surmounting some of the the limits the super nintendo seems to have but yeah, I think overall, I just enjoy the sensation of playing this one more. And I think if you ask me like which one of the two I would go for, probably more often than not, it would be Household in one. Looking all the way up at NCAA Basketball at number 25, a game which we were pretty impressed by. Yeah. Even though, uh, you know, neither of us are real fans of basketball. Um, what do you think of that matchup? Because I would put it pretty high up if we put it above that. Yeah, I think it could do that. NCAA Basketball. Very technically impressive game and genuinely a fun basketball game. It's also kind of limited in some ways. And I feel like a basketball game could surpass that just by by upping the presentation and going a little bit further with some of its ideas. Whereas with House Hole in One, you know, I, I think it 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 would be genuinely quite difficult for another game, you know, to to succeed just by doing the same things that House Hole in One does, because it would have to do them very, very well. I think it goes above that, but like just above that, probably. Okay, so you don't think it goes above Super Buster Brothers at number twenty-four? I don't know. I mean, where would you where would you say the ceiling for this is? I think the ceiling is Spanky's Quest at twenty-three. So I think it either goes above or below Super Buster Brothers. I would probably put it below Super Buster Brothers over time. Having played some more of Super Buster Brothers, I do actually think that game has some very fun ideas that are kind of unique to it. And I think it makes a lot of use out of, you know, being kind of just like a single screen sort of puzzle platformer games. It's close, but I would probably put Household in One just below it. So then uh, we've just got one golf game left to relitigate, and then we'll have more golf after that. But uh, <laughs> PGA Tour, which is right now sitting at 48, this could definitely go above uh, Super Play Action Football and John Madden Football. Uh, this one does not have the full overhead map of the hole while you're lining up your shot. I think you have to go into a separate menu to see that. Yeah. But other than that, you know, I, I do like the presentation of this. I think the course is very clean in a way that Wildlife Country Club and, and all those others aren't. Like, it doesn't clutter the map too much with 
a lot of things that it can't really handle redrawing at a decent clip. The, the game is very smooth. This is the only game that has a more than one course, except for uh, Jack Nicholas Golf, which, you know, that, that game is so bad it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it, it does have that going for it as well. There's a lot of options here. And actually, one thing that kind of surprised me about it is well, this is the only game that has some pretty in-depth controls about how the camera moves. You can actually change, like, does the camera follow the ball, which is what it does by default. And I will say, like, Actually, this works surprisingly smoothly in PGA Tour, you know, in a way that I wouldn't expect from a Super Nintendo game. But again, I think that that goes to just like how not cluttered the courses are. Totally. I, yeah, I mean, I think PGA Tour is a really well put together game. I think it's it's polished. It's got a lot of options and it, you know, it, it looks and plays really good. I don't like the way it lays out information quite as much as House Hole in One. I don't think. Agreed. Yeah. But I do think it does a very good job with what it's doing and... Yeah, I really like also the fact that this game, when you're, you know, kind of starting a hole, it, it you know, has the kind of golf commentators that are sort of part and parcel with the whole PGA Tour thing. Yeah. Uh, actually give some advice on kind of what the best way to play this hole would be. I don't think that the overall package, the way it comes together kind of hits the same heights as Hal's Hole-in-One, but I think it's really good. As a deeper golf simulation, I think it does pretty well, but I think that Hal's Hole-in-One not only has just some better UI elements, but it's just so much more pleasant and enjoyable. You just feel a wash in the pleasant golfiness of it all with mm-hmm. Hal's Hole-in-One, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It probably doesn't, but... <laughs> Okay, so looking at other sports games to compare this to, let's go back to the Super Soccer games at 32 and 33 right now. Would you put this above or below them or in between them? I think I may actually put this in between them. I think it's better than Super Soccer. Super Soccer had the kind of behind-the-shoulder, pseudo-3D view of the players. I think that's a very fun, very arcadey game. I think that it was a little bit thin as far as... as you know, the stuff surrounding the soccer game mechanics go. But it it was really good at those. Um, I think Super Soccer Champ is just a little bit more kind of distinctively impressive in some ways as far as how it relays its sport to the player than PGA Tour Golf is. What do you, I don't know, what do you think? I think I'm okay with that. I think that like uh, Super Soccer, PGA Tour has some really dynamic camera angles that work surprisingly well on the Super NES. Because, you know, we've seen a lot of games try to do this sort of thing and, and just fail at it. Again, Jack Nicholas Golf. <laughs> just our perpetual golf whipping boy, I guess. Well, you know. I think that, you know, the behind the player camera angle of Super Soccer works very well. But I don't think it's quite as easy to read as the side-on view for a 16-bit game like this, like Super Soccer Champ is. PGA Tour, you know, there's a similar issue there. You know, the dynamic camera following the ball while it's in the air works well, but it's just not quite as easy to read as just a nice overhead view of the course as the ball is moving. So as a Super Nintendo game, it's impressive, but it's just not quite what I want out of that so yeah yeah i think i'm okay with this so okay pga tour golf is gonna be our new number 33 all right all right so uh again big thanks to greg and trevor for being on the show for our special and giving us those suggestions again i know these probably aren't the huge leaps that they might have hoped for but i i hope that we, we've at least uh validated your opinion somewhat and, and and acknowledge that uh yeah these these probably deserved a, another look and 
in a more fair shake than we gave them the first time around. I'm glad we gave them another look. And I think it's I think it's useful, you know, especially as we get further and further away from some of the the earlier games on this list that gave us a really strong impression to go back and kind of view those in context with each other and with newer stuff and kind of just just see if the decisions we made still hold true. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, um, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about games. We've been placing some things on the list, but we have a problem. We still only have 100 games on the list. We need to add to it. Yeah. It is time. And uh, what better way to do that than by immediately jumping into more golf? IRM Skins Game. I don't have a whole lot on the history of this one because the Wikipedia article was pretty light and it only had one reference, which was to a game fax. So uh, not not a whole lot to work with there. Do you want to go ahead and explain what a skins game is? Because that is something that I was unaware of before encountering this game. Yeah. So uh, skins game is a golf competition format in which each hole has a certain amount of money attached to it. And whoever gets the best score on a hole wins that money. And if there is a tie, then that money is not awarded and instead goes on to the next hole. Each prize is called a skin. So basically, if there are no winners for the first hole, that skin moves on to the second one. So now there are two skins at stake for that hole. And whoever wins, if there is a winner, wins both of the skins on that hole. Hopefully I explained that well enough. I think you got it. I mean, that's certainly the way that it works within the Iron Skins game, the, the game we're discussing here. So if there's any more nuance to the way that Skins is played as sort of like a type of, of golf in the real world, that's, I guess, kind of outside the scope of this discussion. You know, you can still play match play, stroke, tournament play, whatever. But you can really tell Skins is, first and foremost, the big feature here. And that sort of plays out in how the game is presented when you're in the skins mode. There's a big focus on, you know, what's at stake. And it even does some neat things with how the game unfolds. Like, for example, once you get to the putting green, um, you'll actually watch all the players, even computer controlled ones, putt. And it kind of adds to that drama, you know, of, OK, are are they going to get it They're Oh, they're they're one stroke ahead of me right now. If they get this, then there's no way I can win it. Are they going to miss here? You know, that's kind of cool. On the other hand, it can kind of slow the game down because I found that sometimes almost like chess master like <laughs> the computer takes its sweet time deciding what it's going to do. Uh-huh. So that was maybe less ideal. But, you know, if you're if you're not playing with any computer controlled players, it's going to make this game a lot more fun to play. I really like the way that the skins mode kind of changes the feel of the golf game. Like, I feel like it gives each hole a lot more drama. It feels both like you're playing a very short-term thing of just trying to succeed in this one moment and also the larger golf game that you're playing, you know, overall, the the 18 holes. This game also does some things really differently from pretty much every other golf game that we've played up to this point on the system. For one thing, there's no power meter that needs to be timed. You just determine what that is going to be before you hit. The only timing meter is really just determining how precisely you hit the ball, which is something we've seen in all the other games in one way or another. Some of the games have had different ways of doing that. Hal's Hole in One and uh, PGA Tour Golf, for example, use like the triple click method, which is pretty common these days in golf games, I believe, where you hit once to start the meter, 
hit again to determine how hard you're going to swing, and then hit one more time to determine how accurate your swing is going to be. Here, all you're worried about is accuracy. Um, once you're putting, you don't even have to worry about accuracy. You just line up your shot and try to best determine how much power you think you need to put behind it and cross your fingers and hope you get it. There's a couple of other things I think are very cool about this. For one thing, and I believe this is something that's so far on on the Super Nintendo unique to this game, there's actually four different characters that you can play as that each have like kind of different stats, power, accuracy, all of that. And uh, these these four characters, the power hitter, the all-around player, the technician, and the magician are all differently balanced. So you can kind of have a different experience just based on that. And that's also a kind of cool thing for playing with other people that, you know, everybody gets a a different specific character. That's really cool. I also really like the way this game handles its menu system, because in other golf games, I believe all the other golf games, actually, you basically cycle through and select um, different options for each stroke. You know, the club you're using, the uh, stance you're in, all of that stuff. And then you hit the ball. This game does it a little differently. Basically, it has a variety of, you know, those those submenus kind of arrayed along the bottom of the screen. And you can press a button to move between them and adjust the values there. But you then also hit a separate button to just hit the golf club, uh, to hit the golf ball. And that means that you don't necessarily have to futz around with those menus at all for each individual stroke. And that's kind of cool. I think that possibly is related to the fact that this is an arcade adaptation. Uh, And, you know, I can see the ability to just get directly into the next move and hand off to the next person that you're playing with, kind of hot seat style being a thing you would really want to do in the arcade. Now, I think it works really well here. I think it gives the game that kind of snappy feel that I want from from one of these games. Yeah, it can definitely make the gameplay feel... A little bit faster. I'm not sure I was quite as thrilled with this interface. I just worried about, you know, accidentally swinging my club at the wrong time and, you know, hitting the wrong button since you always have the option of just foregoing any other adjustments and just swinging your club. No, that that's a good point. That's true. But at least it didn't actually take you off the screen and into another menu to adjust all of this, which I appreciated. You know, I, I thought that the way that they did it was very clean and pretty easy to read. Maybe just like some kind of confirmation press before that meter starts and, and gives you the option to swing your club would have been good. Yeah, that's that's fair. Other than that, you know, I, I really like the layout of the UI elements. You get a nice overhead shot of the hole from the screen where uh, where you see your golfer and, and, you know, see all of your options for stances and clubs and whatnot. The game also has the over-the-shoulder perspective for when you're lining up your shot and getting ready to swing. But once you've hit the ball, it changes to an overhead perspective, which again, you know, is what we liked about Hal's Hole-in-One, making it really easy to read where the ball is. And I really like that, actually. I think that this works pretty well, because, again, with those selectable characters, one of which is a woman, by the way, which I thought was kind of neat, with those characters being pretty important elements of the game, it is important to actually be able to see the golfer, I think, you know, as you're lining everything up. But switching to the overhead really helps you be able to read the ball better and, and just kind of see the lay of the course and how well you're doing. Um, I, I think this game is really, really good. I'm 
not going to go too much into the history, but this game was originally called Major Title when it came out in arcades in Japan and the United States. When it got ported to the Super Nintendo over here, it got a title change to Irem Skins game, which I, I believe it just was called Major Title on the Super Famicom. Interestingly enough, the sequel, Major Title 2 Tournament Leader, uh, when it came to arcades in America, they actually changed the name to Irem Skins game again, which might have been a little confusing for some people, but huh. I'm not sure why they did that. But this game only came out in arcades and on the Super NES. And I, I think that they must have known, like, the format of this golf game would work really well on the Super NES. The Super NES hard hardware would be able to handle this. And uh, yeah, it was just a no-brainer to bring it over to the Super NES, in my opinion. This is a fantastic golf game. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it's particularly impressive that this was an arcade game because it never feels like it suffers from that. You know, it never feels like you can see the seams where they kind of had to take away the sort of, you know, quick play, put another quarter in hooks that you would you would often see in an arcade game so i don't think i've gotten much else to say about this one do you not really um i think i'm i'm ready to to put this on the list all right well let's put this on the list then so you know i, I kind of hinted that i might make a case for this going above house hole in one but on second thought i don't think it quite makes it that high i i this is very very good i think i would put this above pga tour yeah i i agree with with that sentiment i don't think this quite hits the height perfect mix of elements that house hole in one have but it's pretty close like it's really good it has a lot of the things i liked about that game and it's doing some of its own stuff that that i think is really neat so yeah i i think definitely above pga tour yeah and i think by having actual characters selectable in the game it gives the game a lot more well character in yeah. more ways than one yeah, i agree with that yeah so I, I don't think it quite goes above house hole in one we have ncaa basketball below that at 26 i'm not sure if it quite hits that mark either yeah i agree like what do, what do you think might be like a good starting point for this one I, I wouldn't go tremendously lower is the thing i think maybe honestly king of the monsters is something we can have a conversation about i don't personally know whether i think it goes above or below it but i think that there's a sense of fun and personality to this game that I think makes it something you could put in conversation with something like King of the Monsters. I mean, you could definitely say, unless it turns out that the arcade version of Irem Skins game had a smoke monster golfer and a rock monster golfer that got cut from the SNES release, it definitely loses less in transition, I think. It does, yeah. I think you can you can more easily see where King of the Monsters has lost a little bit if you look at both games side by side. I mean, you alluded to it just now, but, you know, there's there's kind of a big jump up in presentation quality between the Super Nintendo version and the arcade version of King of the Monsters that I think for that game does impact it somewhat. And I don't really think that's an issue here with the Irem Skins game. I think basically what made that game good survived completely intact yeah so i think it sounds like we're leaning towards this being our new number 27 yeah i think so i think i like that so that is uh irem skins game really really weird title but uh yeah <laughs> pretty nice little golf i like game. the idea that it, it almost like relies on the idea that that irem is a recognizable enough brand that they could just do that like that seems pretty gutsy yeah or that like skins is going to be common enough in just the general cultural vernacular that people just know oh skins yeah that style of golf competition yeah everybody knows <laughs> about that yeah it's it's a very strange name for a very good game that probably deserved a more a, a more descriptive title or maybe a less descriptive title that was at least more 
you know, universal and evocative. But honestly, major title probably would have been a better name for it. I don't know why they changed it. Regardless, it's good, and I'm I'm pleased with where it's ended up on the list. Yep. So uh, so that's the good. Now we're gonna go into um, the not so good. Uh, we're uh, gonna rip those skins right off and uh, see the the skull pirate face underneath. Yeah. We're talking about Skull Jagger or Skull Jaeger. So do we want to talk about history really fast before we get into this game? Because I think we got a lot to say about this one. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So this game was developed by Real-Time Associates. Their website is still up, so I was able to get a little bit of information, but it doesn't look like it's been updated in a while. Their um, copyright at the bottom reads 2003 to 2014, so maybe that was the last time it was updated. In any case, the company was founded by David Warhol in 1986, uh, mostly a music composer and also a member of a team called Blue Sky Rangers who developed Intellivision games in the early 80s. He took that knowledge of making Intellivision games with him when he founded Real Time, and you can tell because most of their early work is just games for the Intellivision. And Real Time Associates actually uh, maintained a relationship or a sort of a, a, at least a, a fondness for working in that environment because one of the last games or one of the later games that they made was the Intellivision Lives compilation for the PlayStation 2. One of their first non-Intellivision games was The Adventures of Rad Gravity on the NES. And this is kind of an interesting one because if you've ever played that game, it's got a very interesting character sprite. He's got a very big head. It's a very character-driven game that is not based on any other outside license or property. Uh, the game we're going to be talking about here has a few parallels to that. Yes, it certainly does. <laughs> Aside from working on their own IPs, though, they also did a lot of work on other companies' IPs. They did uh, some porting of other games. They developed the infamous Dick Tracy for Bondi on the NES, but they also ported Lucasfilm's Maniac Mansion to the system. Which is a, a well-regarded port, I believe. Yeah, two two kind of extremes right there, <laughs> you might say. Yeah, yeah. They also worked on Cubert 3, which we just talked about a few episodes ago, so their hit rate is very spotty, is what I'm saying. They've got some games that are really well regarded and others that are pretty bad my guess is that real-time associates being kind of a a sort of journeyman work for hire studio was pretty limited by how much time and money the various publishers that hired them to make these games uh ended up ended up giving them you know they gave them adequate resources they could do some good stuff if not, they ended up making things like Dick Tracy. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. And you know what I mean? Dick Tracy has some interesting ideas, but... It does, yeah. It's kind of like Friday the 13th in that way. Like, Yeah, yeah. It's an NES game with some really good ideas, really interesting ideas that you don't see in a lot of other games on the system. But to actually play, it's it's just a mess. But anyway, so going back to Real-Time Associates, they developed and ported games to the Game Boy, the Sega Genesis, and the Sega Pico. Are you aware of the Sega Pico? Because I was not. I am aware of the Pico. I don't think I've ever seen one in person, but I've heard of it in in discussions of the sort of arcana of weird Sega projects, for sure. Yeah, so the Sega Pico, in case you haven't heard of it out there, it was a Sega product released in 1994. It was a laptop-like gaming system designed specifically for very young children. It had a lot of edutainment software, as you'd imagine. Hey, it's a video game, but it's both inexpensive and it will teach your children things, so... Yeah, and you can definitely see where this sort of 
of thing is in their wheelhouse later on, which we'll, we'll get to in just a moment here. So uh, as time went on, their releases did become fewer and further between. They developed games for the Game Gear, the Sega Saturn, the Nintendo 64, and the PlayStation. As I mentioned before, one of their more recent works was the 2003 compilation Intellivision Lives, which actually came out on the GameCube, PS2, and even the Xbox 360. Wow. Their last game, according to Moby Games, was Deep Pockets, Super Pro Pool and Billiards for the 360 in 2010. But it wouldn't be their last project. So going back to that sort of edutainment software angle, they worked on a project called Cartoon MD, which teaches children about diabetes through a series of comics and videos. Uh, the CartoonMD.com page still exists, and that Twitter account was last active in 2017, so I don't know how much is still going on there. Uh, before that, they also had an interactive educational display linked to the historical site of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, but that site does not seem to uh, be active any longer. Yeah, I don't know what uh, Real-Time Associates is up to these days, if they are even really still a company or if they're just kind of, you know, a couple of people leaving the lights on. A real varied and interesting gameography for them and, and body of work. This may be the last we've heard of them. I'm not sure. All signs kind of point to that probably being the case, but uh, who knows? So the game was published by American Software Corporation, which does not have quite the extensive history or gameography that Real Time does. This is actually a pretty early game for them. Their last game came out in 1999, which was TNN Outdoor Pro Hunter 2, one of many TNN licensed games from the company. Oh, man. Takes me back, dang. Yeah, good old TNN, uh, which um, is now Spike TV, I believe. It was uh, the Nashville Network, then it was the National Network, and then it was Spike TV, and then we mostly kind of don't talk about it much anymore. Yeah, you know, they decided, hey, what if we were conservative, but we just eliminated any of the actual interesting cultural aspects that are usually associated with conservatism, like country music, um, just aired our opinions instead. Um, that's Spike, apparently. Cool. Oh, no, the politics alarm just went off, I think. <laughs> uh, so they released, um, among other things, some boxing games, some bowling games, including an Animaniacs bowling game in 1999? Really? That's so yeah. late. Wow, that's weird. That's very late, and that, that's just a weird combination of things. It really is, yeah. And as if that weren't a big enough standout, they have one other really interesting thing in their gamography. The 1998 point-and-click horror game sanitarium now that is probably the one project of theirs that i have heard of like i do remember that game existing i don't know if it was any good or not yeah I, i've seen some gameplay footage of sanitarium it looks like a really interesting and disturbing kind of horror game that also has that unfortunate thing of like hey scary thing happening in an insane asylum because crazy people are scary yeah. which is kind of yeah not that's... great no, that's that's pretty part and parcel for a lot of horror games, unfortunately. It makes me hesitant to want to dive into that more, which is a shame because it does look like there's some interesting things about it. But yeah. Oh, hey, there's that politics alarm again. Uh, so let's move on. <laughs> we will hear about both of these companies uh, again in the future. So... Skulljagger. Revolt of the Westicans. Yeah. So this is a pretty unimpressive game. It's got some really frustrating mechanics happening. It's janky. This is, like Rad Gravity, a very character and attempting to be a very story-focused game that's really trying to place front and center this new IP that they're trying to develop. 
And unfortunately, a lot of that doesn't come through in the game because they expected their 80-page instruction manual, where like more than 70 of those pages are dedicated to a story that they wrote to do a lot of the heavy lifting for them on that front. Is that like a prose story or is it like a comic book or what? It is actually a prose story with some illustrations in it. I got about five pages into it and just stopped because like, let's just say it ain't Hemingway. Uh, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you're also not eight years old, which I'm pretty sure, judging from everything about this game, is probably who this was designed for. Yeah. It looks like a Saturday morning cartoon, and it feels very much like a quick and dirty, cheap licensed game for a Saturday morning cartoon. The unique thing is, like you said, that cartoon doesn't exist. They were kind of trying to create this sort of media property whole cloth with this game. So a thing that this reminded me of a lot was the Cheetah Men from the infamous Action 52 cartridge on the NES and and that whole really strange debacle with that company trying to make that. It seemed like they were trying to place the Cheetah Men as this new franchise. It it was this cynical thing where they thought that because there were all these franchises like Ninja Turtles and Biker Mice from Mars and Street Sharks and all this, like that you just make a thing and it just makes you money. Yeah. They didn't realize that a lot of the stuff that really made bank had something interesting about it. Ninja Turtles didn't just appear out of nowhere. It was this franchise that built up, you know, from this very obscure comic book series, which was not for children. And over years kind of developed into this franchise that appealed to kids. And then, became this Saturday morning cartoon, but there was already this lore to build on. I think that too many people around this time just thought, oh, hey, this stuff looks stupid and kids will buy anything. So we'll just make this, tell kids it's a new franchise and they'll just buy it up. And that's not how that works. No, I mean, you, you do have to put in some real work to making something that, that kids are, are going to really respond to. I don't know what their further plans for Skulljagger were, but this is the only Skulljagger thing. So it never went anywhere. And what we're left with is this game. I'm thinking that they were just... They were fishing, right? I don't... <laughs> no, they, they were like, we're going to make this thing and then, hey, maybe people like it enough that we can sell it in other ways. There can be you know, a Skulljagger cartoon and comics and, you know, the the beach towel that you buy with, with Skulljagger's big scary face on it. I'm not going to say that it's quite as egregious as the Cheetah Men because those ambitions have been laid bare through, like, company documentation that people have found. And that all, like, almost seems like they were just trying to run a scam <laughs> more than, like, trying to develop a franchise. Yeah, but, like, yeah. The, the other thing is that, like, a video game is just not a good way to launch a franchise that you're hoping ends up the next big transmedia property. Like, nobody cared about the stories of Donkey Kong and Mario Brothers or any of these other major video game franchises until the games got really, really big and people enjoyed them and wanted more of them. Yeah. a lot about the circumstances of it, but we haven't really talked very much about the content yet, either the story content or what the game actually is. So the game itself that we have sort of spent a while talking around is a pretty generic action platform game. You are playing as a, I guess he's like a pirate. He's a guy who kind of just looks like a bad sprite drawing of Prince Eric from The Little Mermaid. His name is, I believe, Storm Jackson. Which is a good name. Uh, it's a shame that 
is for such a, a generic looking character, but you are fighting your way through a bunch of pirates, bugs, ninjas. Across an island, there's a lot of verticality to the levels in this game. This is a pretty much like an A to B sort of platformer. You're following pretty linear level maps with maybe some some branches and side areas. This isn't a game where you're kind of going all around and trying to collect like a hundred doodads or whatever to complete the level so in that sense there's a pretty clear direction in these levels but unfortunately they're very badly put together there's a lot of blind jumps in them a lot of places where you seemingly kind of just can't avoid being hit by enemies you know a, a lot of places where it's not at all clear what the safe way to go it's got some some additional baubles that go along with this i guess there's a, a very strange power-up system involving bubble gum where you can get different flavors of bubble gum that give you different powers these are both hard to control and kind of not very useful as far as i could tell you can you can encase yourself in a bubble of bubble gum and then sort of bounce around which is hard enough to control that there's actually a separate practice mode just for you to get used to the controls of the bubble gum. And that seemingly is not a great sign, I don't think. The way that the different gum powers are controlled is just incredibly unintuitive. And I feel like these are things that have sort of already been decided in some way for action platformers and real-time associates either weren't aware of that or just didn't care. Like, for example, the great bubble gum, like you said, it encases you in a bubble, makes you invulnerable, and lets you bounce around. But instead of just having you run to the left and right and hit jump to bounce and maybe, you know, have have to like time your jumps to bounce higher and higher. You have to press up and down on the D-pad to actually get momentum and start bouncing higher. That just doesn't work for me at all. There's a cherry bubble gum that works a similar way that gives you like a uh, flight power, which you can actually use until you either hit the ceiling or floor. But Again, I think you have to like push up. It isn't just like a, hey, time your jumping presses or anything like that. It's really weird. Uh, the only one that I really found useful at all was the orange bubble gum, which lets you spit projectiles that just kind of explode. But even that had a pretty limited usefulness as you can only do it for a couple of seconds before it wears off. The more centered power-up is the gem system in which you're collecting different colored gems. Uh, red ones let you shoot projectiles with your sword when you swing it. And green ones, uh, you basically just collect those, and if you get 25 of them, you get a one-up. When you get hit, you lose all of your red gems, and if you don't have any, then you lose all of your green gems. And if you don't have any of those, then you just lose a life. It's an okay system, but there are some things even about that that I found kind of wonky. Like, I'm not sure if there was, like, a maximum number of red gems that you could have, but basically the more red gems you had, the more red gem projectiles you could have on screen at once. But, you know, once you get to a certain point that didn't seem quite as effective, I'd almost rather just roll over into my green gems at that point. But also, the problem with the green gems is that once you get 25, you get your one up, but then you go back to zero, which actually makes you vulnerable again. Oh, that's terrible. And, you know, because with the red gem you lose all of them at once it can be again really hard to get powered back up i wish that it had just like maybe taken one away from you you know where you've got a maximum of three and working more like that like again there's some kind of good ideas in here but they just don't like they feel like they should have sat and thought about these a little bit more nothing in this game feels well thought out or really well put together so we've mentioned before that this game relies on its enormous instruction manual to give you context for anything that's really apparent from even like the earliest moments of this because not having that playing this 
I had no idea why any of this was happening. Yeah, you just get like little snippets of text kind of telling you a little bit of the story, but it doesn't really flesh things out all that much. It, it Like all the text feels very in the moment, like this is happening. Hey, stop him, he said. And then you go into the level. For a game that's trying to have this big story happening, it really does a poor job of immersing you in that story through the game itself. Again, it just expected its instruction manual to do all that heavy lifting for it. And yeah. it's just a complete failure. We never get like a really good look at the characters outside of the character sprites. Skulljagger, who is the big bad of the game, we never get a good look at him. The title screen has his face on it, but the title screen just kind of zooms in and then it's gone and we don't even get a good look at that the character sprite work in this game is just bad it looks like somebody tried drawing a thing a typical character animation cell and then just transcribing that into a 16-bit sprite but that doesn't really work those are two different skill sets like drawing a good cartoon and creating a good sprite aren't necessarily one and the same all the sprites in this are really weirdly formless the character sprite for storm jackson the character you actually play as Reminds me a fair bit of the character sprite for James Bond Jr. in that game. It's the same kind of thing where there was clearly a design somewhere. And then somebody who, like you said, just didn't know how to effectively convey the look of something and sprite work kind of just redrew it. This game doesn't, I guess kind of goes without saying, doesn't really look very good. You know, the, the backgrounds pop a little bit more than the character sprites maybe, but even those are kind of muddy. Nothing moves that well. It doesn't really feel good to play. You had a pretty bad experience actually where uh, you, you kind of got stuck somewhere. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, at one point I, uh, I died and then the game respawned me on top of an enemy, and I just immediately died again, and that just kept happening until I gamed over. The story of this game is that Storm Jackson has stolen Skulljagger's sword and is now trying to escape with it. And the game doesn't really give us a good idea of, is Storm Jackson, like, is he one of the Westicans that these evil pirates have enslaved, or is he just some other pirate who's there, who's doing all of this? Like, basically, I'm asking, is this a weird white savior trope thing, or, or not? I don't know. <laughs> it's impossible to tell uh, from the game itself, and it sounds like also from the story that came along with it. One thing that I guess the storybook is supposed to be good for is giving you hints about where secrets are in the game. Uh, there's apparently some information in the story that can be used at various points in the game to find some some additional routes to explore and, and things like that. So that's kind of a neat idea in some ways, but I, I don't think anything about this project was very well thought through and certainly not well executed. So it's impossible to say how successful some of those things might have been if this was better put together. But yeah, just nothing about this really works at all, I don't think. You know, I, I discovered a few times when I would swing my sword and items would appear. Um, in the second level, there are some torches that are destructible and leave behind items and some that aren't. In the third level, I actually found a thing that teleported me to a bonus stage, which was kind of weird. But yeah. I found one of those in the first level. Oh, okay, yeah, but I, I don't entirely know what it was that I activated or if it was just like a one specific 
part on the screen, if there was an item there that I picked up, I'm not sure. But so, I mean, you know, the game is trying to do some neat tricks, but for a game that wanted to sort of build this new world and these characters, they needed to put that stuff in the game and not put it in an instruction manual. And yeah, so, you know, narratively, I think it's kind of a mess. I don't think it's very good. Gameplay wise, it's pretty janky. The visual of it is is not very good. Like, there's just really nothing about this game I can recommend. Well, with that, should we go to the list and, and try to figure out where to bury this treasure? Yeah, no need to uh, make a pirate map for this one. I mean, I think it goes without saying we're looking pretty low oh, on yeah. the list here for this. I, I think this is worse than, say, like Super Ghouls and Ghosts at number 77. We're definitely going down from there. I would probably put this below Bart's Nightmare, which was a game that had a lot of real problems, but at least did manage to successfully convey an aesthetic and like a cartooniness in a way that, that worked really well, which this game's also trying to do and not managing. Yep. I, I completely agree. Even something like Zardion, which is another side scrolling platformer. I think that game is more successful than this one is. Yeah, I agree. It's another platformer that's trying to build a story and, and make you relate to these characters. And at least like the actual dialogue is coming through in the game and not just, you know, relegated to supplemental materials. You can clearly see that there's some successful world building going on in Zardion, whereas you kind of just have to take it on faith that they were trying to do something in Skulljagger and failed. So I think we go down from there. We got Home Alone 2 at number 88. I don't know. Home Alone 2 might actually be a worse game than this. Yeah, there's not much to Home Alone 2. I do think that the people making this game had maybe had a little more to work with in terms of concepts that work well for an action video game. A pirate fighting guys on an island is easier to translate into an action game than a kid dodging luggage in right. uh, a New York hotel. If you ask me which one of these I would want to play, probably I would want to play Skulljagger before Home Alone 2. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I feel like in our discussion about Home Alone 2, you ended up a little more positive on that game than me. So, like, what do you think? I think I'm okay with this. At least Skulljagger does have those little secrets hidden in nooks and crannies. Like, there'd be something more for me to dig into than with Home Alone 2. So I, I think I'm pretty on board with this. I think I'm okay with it being our new number 88 between uh, Zardion and Home Alone 2. All right. Congratulations, Skulljagger or Skulljager or whatever you are just barely making it above the the bottom 10. All right, folks. So that is going to do it for us for today. Um, we have gone on a little bit long, so I think we are going to have to push race driving into the next episode. So look forward to the next episode when we are going to close out October with a thud because we are going to be talking race driving, TKO, Super Championship Boxing, which I actually don't know how that one's going to fare. Uh, and uh, Wings 2, Aces High, which I, I have an idea about that one. So uh, Yeah, I don't know if I'm excited for that episode specifically, but I am excited to be back doing our main show again, ranking these Super Nintendo games. We have 102 games on the list now, and we hope you will join us next time as we bump that count up to 105. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And hey, that means like uh, the episode after that, we'll finally hear from Newsy again. Remember him? Oh, man. Yeah, I hope he's holding up okay during uh, all the stuff that's going on. Yeah, yeah, me too. I I'm sure he's fine. I'm sure he's fine. Well, anyway, folks, thank you all so much for joining us again. We really appreciate it. Uh, until next time, I'm Steve Bunkley. I'm Emmy Zero. Play it loud.
Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoax, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoax.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com.